forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm having a stinky day. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I like sci-fi. Um, yeah, so we walked in to this day and we said, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we all logged on to the website that records the podcast and I came on late. I'm normally mm-hmm. before Gabby, but I came on a couple minutes late expecting, you know, for me to be the one with the down energy and for me, you know, to be pulling your vibes down. But uh, both of you seemed in terrible moods as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm Melissa and I are both exhausted. I'm extremely tired in like some good ways, but also like I recorded an audio book and I'm I said I could do it all in one day. I could do it all in one day. Uh Oh, by the end of it, my voice would not form words like it was a, such a weird feeling like my I would try to say a word and my mouth could not form it. Ugh. And it's very strange. It's very strange feeling. I have not felt that that many times in my life. And also my throat was so dry. And I was like, oh, maybe talking for six hours straight is bad, actually. So I thought, oh, I'll just push through and I'll just do it all in one day. And then if I'm tired, whatever. But it wasn't just being tired. It was literally I my mouth said no more. What did you do? I, I pushed through it. But every other sentence, I was like, I'm so sorry. I have to take this again. I have to take it again. It was it took six hours. And then by the end of it, even like two days later, I went to like, or yes, Wednesday night, I went to an event. And even at the event, like talking to people at the event, my br- I couldn't do the words. And like my brain wouldn't say the right words to match my mouth. It was so weird. Why are you in a bad mood? I think I'm just like really overwhelmed and stressed about the the book being released. So by the time people are listening to this, my book will be out in the world. Please, please buy it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I and I think I just like am more anxious in general, which is making it so that small tasks that normally would not overwhelm yes. me are feeling insurmountable. And like, how could I possibly mm-hmm. do it? Yeah. That's what I said. I said, are you at a place? Because I was like, here's what's going on with me. Are you at this place? Which it sounded like you were where I was like, you're like so over capacity and so overwhelmed that someone could email you looking for like a photo you already have on hand. And I'm like, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And it's really this like one brand deal that has like been the the straw that's breaking my back where like I just don't understand how to do it. I don't understand what they want and I don't want to do it. And then I've just worked myself up so much about it. And like, I understand that my reaction to this is like irrational, but I also feel that reaction in my body. So my body is reacting as though the reaction is rational. Yeah. And when it rains, it pours. Like there are some people that I am on weird terms with for various reasons. And I was at this meeting and yesterday morning and all like four of them texted me, like the four horsemen of the text apocalypse, like all texted me at once. And I like turned to look at my phone and I was like, no, not today. Like (laughs) I was so overextended. And then all four of them like texted me something and it was all innocuous in a way. But I was like, I looked at my phone. I went, get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. 
Um, and, and it was like, you know, you would just not respond or you would be like, I don't know, whatever it was. And it was stuff like a network guy texting me to like, you know, say something regarding a show that I have going on that like negative, whatever, there's like, you know, a negative thing happening. And he was just texting me to like catch up, like to just be like nice and catch up or whatever. And I was like, no. And then like two seconds later, it was like three other texts from three other people. And I was like, no, (laughs) it's not even that I'm like in a beef with them. It's just stressful people. And I was like, how did you all know at this moment? I sent a newsletter, actually. I said, Gabby is is hanging in (laughs) by a thread. If you have any sort of weird relationship with them, now's the time to just send an awkward text that'll, you know, consume their mind. Was I not supposed to do that? No, I should subscribe to your Patreon so I can know that you're sending these newsletters. I don't have a Patreon anymore. Sorry, your Substack. You see what I mean? I'm not even on the pulse. See, this is why I have to send these newsletters about you. Yeah. Because you're not even supporting me. (laughs) You're not. Yeah, I'm not following your emotional support lady Substack. So that's why I don't know that these messages are going out. Well, you learned something important today. Uh, This is just between (laughs) us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal, brutal honesty. This week, we're going to be asking Dr. Efrat Lamandre some tough questions about family medicine. And it's it's a doozy of a convo. So get ready for it. Yeah, it is a doozy of a convo. And I'd say that that first half of it might feel a bit upsetting about some stuff regarding diet and weight. uh, But we then have Gabby does a great job of asking some clarifying questions. And I think the the second half of the interview, hopefully the intention of the guest is more clear. Yeah. And so I think it actually ended up being really helpful. But if that first half is rubbing you a little bit the wrong way, and if you're able to, Gabby does do a great job of sort of shifting the focus and what was what the intention was, if that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, you were great. I was like, oh, this is why I love having a (laughs) (laughs) co-host. Thank you. Thank you. And um, later we're going to be discussing villains. Is anyone all bad? What makes someone a villain? I came up with this primarily because of Elon Musk. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it. International question, international question, international question. Nicole, Philadelphia. The crack of liberty, the birthplace of freedom, the slice of a bell herd around the world. (laughs) Gabby's recently been hired by Philadelphia's PR company. (laughs) Tourism board. Yeah. Can you imagine? (laughs) That's your side hustle. Yeah. I'm like, Yin's guys, you got to go to Pennsylvania. We do love Philly. We've we've had some lovely times there. Yes. Although I will say I like Philadelphia a whole lot. I will say that Philly, if you look up Hitchhiking Robot in Philadelphia, it's a gr- it's a good time. I won't give it away, but the Hitchhiking Robot like had a glorious time in all over the country and all over different parts of the world and in Philly um someone took a baseball bat to it. So just read the whole story because it's incredible and it and a lot of my Philly friends have been like this is indicative. Oh no. <laughs> Okay, well, Nicole says, TLDR, any tips on how to feel comfortable doing activities alone in public? Details, I am very much a homebody, but I do enjoy going out and doing things. Since graduating when COVID hit, I've realized that I'm an adult now and can make my life how I want it. I've realized I mostly just stay home, work on art and watch TV in my free time. I'm in my mid-20s and don't want to live the rest of my 20s cooped up especially because in college, that's what I did for the most part. 
Recently, I asked all of the eight people I know to go to an event with me, and they all had different reasons for not going. I ended up not going, but I totally want to be the person who takes themselves out on dates and doesn't need other people to go places. I don't want to hold myself back. I want to put myself out there in the world. How does someone feel more comfortable going to events and places alone? P.S. You folks are the best. I look forward to listening to the show every week, and I always look forward to seeing where your careers take you. Wish you both the best. Nicole. Yeah, I was going to, I said cool, but I was like, oh, wow, you stay home, work on art and watch TV. That's cool. But then like two seconds later, you were like, I don't want to do that anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes, it depends on my, like your mood. I don't know. Sometimes I like going places by myself because then you can just leave and you don't have to worry about another person's feelings. And sometimes I like go somewhere by myself and I'm immediately like, I, I wish there was another person here. <laughs> Oh, now I have to start conversations with strangers. I think it's like so different between like going out and doing something like going to dinner by yourself, going to a movie by yourself, going to a museum by yourself versus like going to an event by yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to like break them into two things, because for me, I really I'm lucky in that I don't really have like too big of a problem doing that first contingency by myself because I actually find it, it can be really nice. I love to like read when I'm eating. So I love to like have a good book. So if like it's in terms of like taking yourself out to a great restaurant, I think that like having a book or something that you're reading or listening to a podcast, then it can feel, you know, like maybe you're someone who likes to just eat in silence. But if not, then you have those options while you're still at a great restaurant. And then I think the real reframe is just like, what does it mean to be alone in public? Like what part Mm -hmm. of it is making you uncomfortable? Is it making Mm -hmm. you uncomfortable because you think people are judging you because you think people Mm -hmm. are feeling badly for you? And that's something that I've had to really challenge myself with because I've been known to start crying when I see people eating alone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I remember this. Yeah. So I have uh, and I think it's obviously 100 percent a projection of me being terrified of being lonely. And so when I see people eating alone, I become very, very worried that they're lonely. And then I get overwhelmed with emotion and sometimes I cry. That hasn't happened in a while. But um, so a thing that I'm having to really reframe for myself is when I see people out alone going, I don't know what their lives are. They could very well have like a, a big bustling family and they just like love to eat lunch by themselves to have a moment. Or they could be someone who just like really enjoys having a more solitary lifestyle. Like I realized I was putting so many assumptions on these complete mm-hmm. strangers that I didn't need to be doing. So if you're Mm -hmm. feeling like worried that people are going to maybe put assumptions on you, just recognizing that like one, they're assumptions and two, like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what a random passerby thinks of you if you're out by yourself eating alone or doing something alone. What matters is like your internal world and experience. And if you Mm -hmm. enjoy those things, then it's just like learning to let go of like what other people might think about it. The second part is how do you go to events alone? (laughs) Like, how do you go to a party alone? How do you go to something where like everyone around you is engaging with other people that they already probably know or have met or something? That is scarier to me. Are you good at that, Gabby? So here's two things. One, you know, we've talked about this before where the society has some, for some weird way, been set up for two people. Like, It puts pressure on people to have a partner, even if that partner is not right for them. 
because everything is like, you need two people to do this. You need two people to go to the movies. You need two people to go to dinner. You need two people to go to a wedding, whatever. Like all of these things in society are set up for like you not to do them alone so that it looks weird when somebody is doing it alone. And that's like a weird thing that I wish people... I wish people would stop doing because it creates weirdness for people who want to do things alone. It creates weirdness for like poly throuples. Like it's just like this very strange assumption that every everyone and everything will come in twos. And so I understand why that makes you feel strange to do things by yourself. One thing that I like about going places by myself is like I am completely in control of what I what happens and what I do. I stay at the restaurant as long as I want. I leave as long as I want. I can walk out of a movie and I don't have to immediately process the movie with someone. I can like sit and take a couple hours and think like, well, okay, what did I learn? What came from this movie? You know, which I love my friends, but a lot of them, because we work in Hollywood, immediately want to dissect the movie afterwards. And I am like, I'm sorry, I don't have thoughts right now. I will have thoughts in two hours. (laughs) So there are a lot of positives to doing things alone, like in terms of mentally and like my capacity for needing to entertain other people or feeling like I need to like be on for these people. Not everyone. I don't feel that way about everyone, but I am also an extrovert. So if I'm alone too much, I go a little stir crazy. Like I like going out and seeing people and having people. But in public spaces, if it's people I don't know, sometimes it like fuels me to like be somewhere where I'm a little anonymous. So there's two different things. There's like You go to the party and you maybe only know the host and you're by yourself and you don't know any of the other people at the party. That is like, feels a little like pressure because then you have to like kind of figure out who you're going to start to talk to. You're going to have to figure out like, you know, what's the relationship between, between all these people I don't know. You know, one of my tips is in that situation to say either, how do you know the host? Or if you see two people talking, be like, hey, Oh my God, how do you guys know each other? People love to talk about themselves. I'm, I, I'll push back. So you're in a, you're, you just are at a big event with a bunch of people and then you just go up to two people talking and you go, how do you know each other? Right no, 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 no. Like if you're at like a house party and you know the host or if you're at a party and you like- I understand asking how you know the host, but I think going up to two people who are in the middle of a conversation and saying, how do you two know each other is a little that, Okay, but that could be a next, okay, so that's question number two, maybe. Question number <laughs> okay, one yeah. is like, is you could go, I love your jacket. Where did you get it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or give them a compliment and then and then start talking to them at a public event, like a concert or like a drag show or something. And I'm by myself. I find also similarly to going to the movies and stuff by myself where I don't know anyone. I find that very freeing because I can like enjoy the show or like I you're anonymous in these people. So they don't know you. So you can dress a little differently. Like there's like some like fun freedom there that I think I reframe that kind of thing to be like, you know, I like going with people, but also like, oh, if I'm by myself, I can like experiment a little with like, who am I and what's my story and focus on enjoying the show and stuff. So it depends. One and three that we decided are a little bit less stressful to me than like two. What's three? I've lost track. One is going to the movies or eating lunch alone. Three is going to like a concert or a drag show or some kind of big event alone. And then two, number two was going to a party where you like know one person or maybe you don't know anyone. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That that 
second one is more stressful. But I think, honestly, people are not thinking about you as much as as much as you think they are. And also, they don't know your relationship with anyone. So if you just go up and start talking to someone, maybe someone else at the party will go, oh, wow, they know them. Like, I don't know anyone. You know, you don't know what people like someone talking to one person there may have started by being like, I like your necklace. And they don't know each other either. Right. And I think, unfortunately, that question of like, how do I become more comfortable? It's a lot of it is just doing it. (laughs) A lot of it is just like going out, doing these things alone, having evidence that like you can do it, having experience that like, oh, it actually went better than I thought that you did like Mm it. And, you know, I think that like, there is this inability to like be alone in a crowded room. Like it feels so intrinsically awkward sometimes. Mm-hmm. But like, what if we decided that that objectively wasn't an awkward thing? That right. like, it's okay to be alone in a crowded room. And that's like, you're still out. You're still living your life. Like, oh, you don't happen to know anyone in this room. <laughs> and maybe, yes. yeah, it's like, and maybe you'll meet someone. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just, you know, take in the gallery at the at the art show that you're at. Like, who knows? But mm-hmm. I think it probably is one of those things that like, the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll get. And mm-hmm. maybe building yourself up with these other, with like the, the first type of activities where like, you know, restaurants, galleries, uh, shopping, um, parks, movies, parks, like things where like the social element is like a bonus, but not the focus just to Mm -hmm. like get you to be a little more comfortable, like out in the world doing stuff. Yeah. I would also say don't feel pressure. Like I think don't feel like if you're going somewhere and you're not having a good time, leave. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Go try it. Like, you know, see what kind of activities you like doing alone. Like maybe you'll find out that you like love to go to an art museum alone, but you don't really like going to the movies alone and you'd rather watch a movie at home. So like, don't feel like it's got to be like all or nothing. If you don't have a good time, then it's a failure and you should never try it again. But just like Mm -hmm. check in with yourself and, and try different experiences. I also think trying like a class alone could be a really good like toe in the door because classes Mm -hmm. are sort of like inherently social. So it's likely that you'll end up chatting with somebody in the class, Mm -hmm. which might make it enjoyable, means you have like a shared interest as a baseline. Mm -hmm. But I think this is like such an awesome goal. I was just like kind Mm -hmm. of excited to read this email. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really good question. And I think it's a really great thing to have identified about yourself to Mm -hmm. have said, oh, I like this way that I've been living, but this is a change that I would like to make. And so I'm going to like take some strides to make it to enhance my life. And I think that's like such a a lovely approach to stuff. Um, And so I'm just really excited and and, um, rooting for you. Mm -hmm. And I would say if you go out and you maybe you wear a statement piece, like big earrings or something or like a whatever, people will come talk to you. Yeah. Wear something that is so offensive. Someone no, is going to come to no, I just touch. Wear joking. something that people can compliment. I know. It's just joking. It's a good it's a good uh, point. Thank you. And the reverse looking for things that you genuinely like about other people to start conversations. Yes. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Dr. Efrat Lamandre. Stay tuned. Just between us. 
welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Dr. Efrat Lamandre, who owns and operates her own medical practice, EG Healthcare, which provides pediatric, adult, and geriatric care to over 20,000 patients. In addition to her primary care practice, she's taking conventional medicine to the next level with her signature process, the new method. Hello, Efrat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. One of the things that's so cool about you is you're one of the first nurse practitioners to have their own practice. Is that right? Yes. In New York State, that's true. I don't know. What state are you guys in? California. California. So California is still working on it. In 2023, I think you guys are going to have some autonomous NPs. New York State was kind of like in this yellow area. So I'm one of the few who have her own practice. And But most recently, legislation passed and anyone can do so. But not everyone is brave enough to do so. (laughs) Yeah. Why was this blocked before? And uh, what does it mean now that it's not? Oh, that's a great question. So you know, nurse practitioners, the, the schooling is nurse, and then you go to nurse practitioners. And initially, it was like nurse practitioners would have to practice under the guidance of a physician. But over time, some states realized that, hey, this seems like an unnecessary step. And the conversation is not just about the autonomy for the NP, but it's about access to care, right? So we have this huge primary care shortage in this country. So many people can't access care. So many people are waiting months to access care. MDs are not going into primary care anymore because it just doesn't make sense to them financially to have these school loans. And so you have this shortage, and then you have this whole workforce of NPs, and you're creating these obstacles for them to practice independently. So it, it, it didn't make sense. So that's the reason to undo it. But then, of course, you have a lot of old school people who are just like, no, don't give anybody too much autonomy. It's too scary. You know, so the NPs will kill everyone. And of course, the statistics, statistics do not show that at all. COVID in New York, COVID really made a difference because what happened in COVID is just no one. There was just a shortage. So they temporarily lifted all the bans. Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? Absolutely nothing. Everyone is safe. <laughs> so <laughs> so they were like, they're like, um, OK, it's time to make this permanent. So I guess the short answer is there's always an old guard that doesn't want change. And each state takes its time in undoing the old guard and understanding that access to care is really important and that nurse practitioners can provide primary care without having someone looking over their charts. That's where we are now. And how is the schooling different, you know, from a nurse practitioner to someone who becomes a family doctor? And and why are, are we maybe like misinformed about that. And <laughs> yeah, so the schooling is different. So let's let's talk about NPs, PAs, MDs. With, without a doubt, MDs have the most schooling. There's, there's no conversation about that. They have their schooling and then they have residency, which is like you're kind of in school, you're kind of practicing and you, you learn the ropes and they spend more time in school. The idea for PAs, my wife's a PA, so I have to mention that, physician assistant, they also go to med school. They just don't have a residency. So that's the difference there. And then for NPs, the idea is you are an RN first and you have to be a practicing RN for a while. And then because the idea is, okay, maybe you didn't have the same schooling, but you've been in the field practicing, then you go back to school for a nurse practitioner to learn the other side, like how to diagnose and how to prescribe, et cetera, and then come out. So the NP model assumes that the time you spend as a nurse counts for something. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas an MD goes to school, stays in school, and then it kind of comes out. So it is a different approach to this, the same starting point. And then some states, like for example, New York will say, okay, as a new grad NP, you still need to be under an MD for like 3,600 hours. And then you could be on your own. And I happen to like that. Not every MP likes that. Some people want full autonomy in the gadget, but I like that. 3,600 hours, work under someone, prove yourself, you know, learn what you need to, and then become autonomous. But we're talking about, from NPs, we're talking about primary care. Mm-hmm. So there's geriatric NPs. I'm a family NP. There's pediatric NPs. There's psych NPs. Let's just talk for a moment about psych NPs because mental health crisis in this country, what? And I don't know if you know anyone who's ever tried to get a psychiatrist. Good luck. You just can't get an appointment. And so you have this whole world of psych NPs who could do the same thing, prescribe the meds, help the people in need. So this is just a critical time for everyone in our country to make sure we get access. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about like the healthcare crisis in in this country and how just the, the way the system is set up is not actually making it accessible for anybody? Oh, my goodness. OK, <laughs> so... I know this is not video, but like I can't roll my eyes harder um, <laughs> on this topic. I actually talk, I actually teach this topic at the at our local college, healthcare policy and finance. Where do I begin about barriers to care? So barriers to care. Let's talk about the insurance part first. I mean, I don't know how technically you want me to get, but the insurance part is a barrier, and we'll talk about that. But then there's also this world called social determinants of health, which is outside of healthcare. So let, let's do the healthcare piece first, because that's mm-hmm. the piece that gets like the most attention. So access to care in this country depends on whether or not you're insured. And it is really hard to get insurance. And that stems from the fact that as a country, we never decided then we put our country together, that it is the government's responsibility to make sure its citizens have access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. I am not sitting here to tell you to turn to universal healthcare. It has its own problems. I am just saying that other modern countries, when they established themselves, saw it as the government's responsibility, just like to educate and make sure that the citizens can read and write and have roads and pave roads and have hospitals. Our country didn't decide that it is the government's responsibility to make sure citizens have access to care. And right now I'm just saying the word citizens because very modern countries like France also include non-citizens. But I'm going to say the word citizens now just for this conversation. So it was never established. So the way insurances were established in this country around the 20s and 30s was actually as a business. So insurance companies were like, hey, if we can collect $5 per week from people who are employed and who never need it, and then we give them two weeks in the hospital. That's how it started. It started as a business. And I'm not against business, but inherently when you start something in the business, you're going to be Mm profit-based. So it's not citizen-based. It's not access-based. It's profit base. So that started in the 20s and 30s. Then, you know, in the Great Depression, employers couldn't pay post-depression, couldn't pay high salary. So they started giving benefits instead. And so it's just started being connected to a business, employment. And ever since then, all we've been doing as a government is trying to fix it. You know, I really can go, I can go into a lot of details. I don't want to bore your audience. But all we've been doing is band-aiding it. And the last Band-Aid is what was, was called Obamacare. It's a misnomer. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's not Obamacare. If you call it Obamacare, then you get to decide politically whether you agree or not without knowing the details of it, right? If you're for Obama, mm-hmm. you love it. And if you're, an, if you're against Obama, you hate it. And even though you have no idea what you're talking about. So it's the Affordable Health Care Act. <laughs> the Affordable Health Care Act basically realized 
that millions of Americans were uninsured. And not just out of the kindness of our heart, but it costs the country much more to leave its citizens uninsured because you get sicker and then you end up in the ER and that costs more. So let's just take hypertension, high blood pressure. A pill is like five cents Mm -hmm. to manage blood pressure, but you can't afford it or it's not covered or you don't have access to someone who will prescribe it. So you don't do anything about it. And then your kidneys fail and you end up going to the emergency room and that costs the country more. So they realized, you know, Affordable Care Act is really, I would I'd love to say that our politicians were kind, but they realized it costs more not to insure people. So they mm-hmm. try to make a system to cover those who are not covered. Because there's this, there's a sense of like, you know, if you're just not lazy, you can get insurance. But let me tell you who the most uninsured population was and is. Really hardworking citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to talk about non-citizens in a moment. Really hardworking citizens, aren't sure. So if you're a mom and, and you're a woman and then you got your insurance from your husband and then your husband decided to cheat on you and leave you and you're, guess what? You don't have insurance. Are you lazy? No. If you are really hardworking and you have like two part-time jobs because you're just trying to make ends meet, but neither of those jobs give you insurance, are you lazy? No, you're the opposite of lazy but you don't have insurance. If you're a mom who just gave birth and you can't go to work, are you lazy? No, you just don't have access to insurance. So these are very able-bodied, non-lazy people. What if you work for a small company? Like when I first opened my business, I couldn't offer insurance to my staff. So are they lazy? No, trust me, anyone who works at EG Healthcare is killing it. I just couldn't afford it when we started, right? So you have significant, hardworking American population So I'm using all these words that, you know, the other side kind of says, oh, it's these lazy, you know, immigrants that are not accessing. Not true. Hardworking Americans cannot access care. So now let's talk about those that do have insurance. I see them all the time. They cannot afford the co-pays. I've had patients in my office. I had this one woman that comes to mind who needed iron infusions. I mean, this woman was sick. She had her job. She had insurance. She did everything right. Check, check, check. All all the things. Not lazy. God forbid. God forbid she, you know, took a day off to be sick. And she needed iron infusions. And every time I saw her, her her numbers kept going down. Like, why aren't you going? She goes, because every time I go, it's $25 copay. I don't have $25. So, I mean, of course, I wrote her a check to go and do it. But the point is, that's a huge systemic problem that a hardworking person cannot get access to critical care because of copays, because this system is set up and I can go on about health, you know, deductibles and yeah. everything. So we have healthcare as a, we have healthcare as a problem. So even accessing healthcare and then even if you're in the system, how do you manage it? That's problem number one. But now, believe it or not, healthcare is not the biggest issue. I mean, insurance is not the biggest issue for healthcare. Insurance is not the biggest issue. It's actually the smallest percentage of the issue for um, the health. The biggest issue is social determinants of health where people live, where people go to school, do they have access to nutrition? Are their neighborhoods safe? And of course, this is not a high priority for us as a country. And it's not where we put our dollars in because it doesn't seem like it's worth it financially. Mm-hmm. But it is. And I'm not even talking altruism, right? Because of course, I'm not talking heart to heart. I'm trying to talk to you business. It just makes sense to invest in your communities because guess what? If it's safe and they have access to nutrition, they don't get sick. And if they don't get sick, it doesn't cost you a year. So if you educate people and make sure they finish high school and they can understand ingredients or labels or what's happening with them, 
guess what? They're probably not going to end up in the hospital, right? You know, if there's no lead paint on their wall, they're not going to access the system. So creating an environment where, you know, humans are safe actually is financially smart. Mm. And then let me just take a moment for, you know, this conversation of immigrants that they don't have, you know, that they're t- they come into this country and they get insurance. Okay, that's, am I allowed to curse on the show? It's 100% bullshit. Yeah. Okay, good. The Managed Care Act, the, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, excludes illegal immigrants. You cannot get insurance in this country if you're an illegal immigrant. So the entire rhetoric of they come over the border and they get insurance is just a lie. It's a lie. It's, this is not my opinion. If you are bored enough and read it, it's it's there in clear black and white. So illegal immigrants not having insurance, you would, you know, you would think you'd be like, yay, we won. Illegal immigrants don't get insurance. Yay, this is the best American idea ever. And by the way, I'm ironic in case you can't pick that up um, for your audience. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a problem because if you have a significant part of your population who doesn't have access to care and they get sick, they're going to get your citizens sick. We're, we're, we're living here. We're together. Okay. So if right. there is a tuberculosis outbreak, it doesn't care if you have a passport or not. Right. If there's an STD outbreak, it doesn't care if you have a passport or not. So, you know, modern countries in, in Europe, like France comes to mind right away. They have a certain amount, maybe not full access for, for non-citizens, but certainly access to care for non-citizens because it, they know that it affects the whole population. Wow. That's the short answer to your question. <laughs> and I also feel like there's just, even in, in cities, it's impossible to get a doctor's appointment. Like I've been trying to make, I live in Los Angeles and I, it took me months to get in to see a knee surgeon. It's taking me months to get in to see a gastroenterologist. Like, what is that about? Why is that sort of like bottlenecks happened? It feels like more recently. This is this is a multifaceted also. So in reality, the ideal, so part of the problem is that in this country, we want things really, really fast. Mm. Okay, so, and so this, this answer annoys patients because patients, like if my knee hurts right now, I need to be seen by the top surgeon in a given city, like ASAP, right? There's that sense of like, I don't want to just see the guy. I just want to see the top surgeon because I'm super entitled and it's very important. And I don't know why I have to put that little extra accent on, but I did. Okay, so the way a functioning system should work, and I need you to like put a, aside your personal needs for a moment, the things that are important to you. But let's think for a moment, you run a country, you're putting together the system, you get the, the opportunity to run it from scratch. The best way to run a healthcare system is to have a very huge pool of primary care providers. Right. Everyone goes to primary care first because 80% of the things can cover by primary care because rare diseases are rare, right? So like the rare kidney cancer that you heard someone have, it's rare. Like there's numbers involved, right? So everyone should go here first. Then if you need a specialist, they will determine if you need a specialist because guess what? If you have if you have joint pain for like two weeks, you, you don't really need any guy. Um, there's criteria. You should have six weeks pass and then an x-ray first. And then if it doesn't resolve some physical therapy and then if it doesn't resolve MRIs, right? But everyone feels like, oh my God, I have knee pain for two days. I need an MRI. So you go to the primary care and he or she then decides, okay, it's time for a specialist. And then in your country, you're going to make sure that your medical schools only graduate a certain amount of specialists. 
because you don't need 50 million knee specialists. You need 50 million, I'm making up numbers, 50 million primary, and then maybe 10 million knee specialists, and then maybe like 1 million of like the very, very like specific knee specialists, right? Because there's less, it comes rarer and rarer that you need them. You want to create a system that is primary care heavy and specialists should be very, very little at the top and all in one area. Our country doesn't do that. So by the way, the, in, in the EU, the countries not only control the healthcare part, the insurance part, they also control how many people graduate from med school. And so then when they can't get into med school, they come here and graduate here because here will just, it's a business, right? So it's, they'll graduate as many people as come in. So they graduate them. So now we have a system where we have a lot of specialists and not enough diseases for all these specialists. So guess what they have to do? Because they graduate school and they have loans and they have babies to feed and they have to put food on the table. So now they also start to do things that they don't need to do. They start doing primary care. They start doing, you know, a lot of things that they, that they weren't designed to do. So in answer to your first part of your question is, there should be a bottleneck. The bottleneck is wrong in this country, but there should be a bottleneck. The bottleneck should be it shouldn't be the case that because your knee hurts, you need to see a specialist right away. Like I know that kind of rubs like like on a personal basis when you see somebody hurting your family, you're like, no, 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 I want him to have immediate care right away, right? But systemically, you should have access to primary care right away. And then only if needed, will you, will you need to kind of be leveled up. But it's a free for all right now. You can call, you, you know, you could just go to any cardio, you can go to the best cardiothoracic surgeon. If they have an appointment, you, you could just go, even though if you don't need them, because you have chest pain and you saw on Dr. Oz that, you know, you think you might be dying. You have access to that. So because it's kind of like unregulated, the bottleneck is at the wrong place because now the bottleneck is trying to, in this country is trying to get primary care. You can't get into primary care. We don't have enough of them. So it's just, it's just topsy-turvy. I don't know if, that helped at all. <laughs> no, I think it, I mean, it is a confusing thing to sort of take in because I do think, you know, part of the problem is things are so specialized where like, you know, a lot of times you'll see somebody and then like they, you would hope that a, a family care physician could help you with it. But instead it's like, oh no, go see this person and wait, you know, months. Okay. So that's, that's a, that's a different issue, right? Part of that problem now is, and this is why I started integrative practice is that in, now this is a conventional medicine versus integrative medicine approach. Conventional medicine, if you're like, let's just say I'm not feeling well, I don't know what's going on. You go to primary care and they're like, well, I don't really know. Your stomach hurts, you know, go to GI. Mm -hmm. Part of that conversation is because when they saw you and they did the conventional medicine labs, there's nothing wrong with you. So you just kind of refer out because there's also a conversation of I don't want to get sued. I don't want a lawsuit. Right. Let me just refer out, which other countries also cap lawsuits. So we don't have that cap either. Like as we, you'll see, this is like a multifactorial problem. So you could just sue for anything, right? So there's this constant like cover, cover my ass. Let me make sure I refer so I cover my ass. So if it is that one weird thing, I don't get sued. So refer out. But conventional medicine also has a hard time with anything that's gray. So a lot of my patients, and I was guilty of this too when I first started my practice. You know, you learn something in the, the medical model. Patient comes in, I don't feel good, great. I run labs, there's nothing wrong with you. Have a nice day or go to a specialist. It's not mean, it's not malicious. It's just the way we're taught. Um, but I discovered over time through like a personal journey that that is just very limited. And a lot of times people will have symptoms way before the blood markers starts. Let's just take, for example, diabetes. Mm -hmm. Let's just say, you know, you eat crappy, your whole family has diabetes and you're like, I, I really think I have diabetes. And you come in 
And there's a test called an A1C and it's negative. So you go home and you have another year of like, you know, Doritos. And you're like, it's, it's fine. My A1C was fine. The doctor said I'm good. And you're overweight. Every, everybody in your family is diabetic, but the A1C is fine. So you go for another year. And now I only need to see you once a year because that's what the insurance allows. I'll see you next year. And this can go for 10 years and your A1C won't shift and you will make no lifestyle changes. But you're feeling kind of like off. But the A1C is fine. Your cholesterol is fine, right? So you're good. Like the, the numbers say you're good. You're feeling off. You know your diet's off. And this will happen for years. And then finally, you'll be like 45. And then like, oh my God, you're diabetic and you have cholesterol. Oh, how can it be? Just last year, everything was fine. Because the markers take time to catch up. So in integrative medicine, we pay attention to the symptoms. And if the patient's like, I really, I just don't feel optimal. Yeah. Okay. Your A1C is fine. But guess what? I could do a test that shows if you have insulin resistance and you probably do. Mm. The reason we don't do that test in primary care is because we can't medicate for it. Guess what? I'm going to check your inflammatory markers, which we don't do in primary care because I can't medicate for it. So the patient who wants more I will do different tests. Wow, guess what? Your A1C didn't shift, be insulin resistant. You have inflammation all over your body. Um, genetically, you're predisposed to Alzheimer's. So let's get on this. Like, So we could do tests so we can have a conversation of what I call pre-disease. But that takes a motivated patient also, right? Because that how many, we know that the st standard American human is fine having Doritos and seeing their annual provider once a year. They're fine with it also, right? It's both sides, it's provider and patient. But the patient who wants more will be frustrated in primary care. The patient who wants more has to find integrative or functional medicine, who's willing to peel the onion, do different tests, because we're not interested in giving you medication anyway. We're going to say, you're right, we're going to need to go on a low-carb diet. Maybe we need to do intermittent fasting. Maybe we need to go dairy-free, gluten-free. So as you can see, you need a committed patient, a provider who understands there's more, but also a patient who's willing to do more than just go to the pharmacy and pick up a script. Interesting. You talk a lot about medicine as a business in a broad sense. And like, I think it's interesting to hear that, well, it does, it, as if you can't prescribe something for it, then we're not interested and the patient's not interested. I, and I, I make sense that a lot of doctors don't do preventative for things like Alzheimer's, you know, where you just kind of assume, well, this is, this is, there's no control over this. There, yeah, I mean, and was there a question that I interrupt? No, no, I'm just thinking, okay. I'm just I'm just taking in. You're taking it in, right? Yeah. Let me say this. I want to make sure that it's clear. I don't think doctors are malicious or greedy or when they see you that they have any ill intent. I really want to make that clear. The system is just set up a certain way. Right, that's what I'm taking in, yeah. Yeah, when when the, when you're there, when because I, I do primary care also, and even, and it's volume driven, like my primary care days, I'm seeing 70 patients in a day. On my integrative care days, I see 10. I could spend more time here, right? Mm. So it, it, you must see volume when you're doing primary care in order to put, pay your light bills because the, the, the system just doesn't pay well. You can't take an hour with a patient and be able to pay your secretary. It's not possible. So it's not even a greed factor. It's like a survival factor. So it's, everything moves faster. So you move faster, and so there's less time for counseling. There's less time mm -hmm. to say, hey, what's going on in your life? Like, what's happening? Like, what are you eating for breakfast? You know, I know you think that fruit smoothies are great, but they're not because you just started your day full of sugar. Can't have that conversation in a seven-minute appointment. It's not because the doctor's bad. It's just the system's set up that way. So that's that. 
But then there's also is this whole world of learning that we do not learn in conventional medicine. I'll give you an example. Eczema. So many people have eczema, psoriasis. So many people have eczema, psoriasis. You go to the doctor, you get cream. End of conversation. This is the cream. This is the thing. It's, why do you have it? I don't know. You just have it. Your skin's just sensitive. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's literally the conversation. They'll maybe give you an, exa- an explanation of what's happening to your skin. But there's no answer to what's triggering your skin. And it's not wrong because trust me, if you're in pain, you want that cream. Mm-hmm. It's not wrong. It's not dismissive. It's just, you know, that's the algorithm. It's what we call evidence-based medicine. We look at our evidence-based medicine algorithm. It says psoriasis. This is the cream you give and you give it. But in integrative medicine, we know that skin is the neon sign of what's happening inside. If you're having skin issues, something's going on inside. But I promise you, we don't learn that in conventional medicine. So it's not that these people are evil. They don't, ha- they don't know this information. I had to go back to school for this. And so one of the first thing I do if I have somebody with eczema and psoriasis, clean up their diet. Just clean up. Take off that dairy. Take off the gluten. Let's see what happens. Here's the beautiful thing. If I'm completely wrong, there's no side effects to my advice. I didn't didn't prescribe anything. Great. So you went gluten-free. Oh my God, the worst thing in the world. So if you're gluten-free, dairy-free, and I took you off a whole bunch of stuff and your skin clears up, you know, that's the root cause of what's happening in your skin. And then, you know, slowly reintroduce. But the point is, is that, so not only is there a time factor, not only, you know, is the system kind of geared a certain way, but knowledge base, there's never a conversation in conventional medicine of, root cause of certain issues like you just kind of accept it as it is and then you learn how to treat it Mm. but everyone is doing their best when you're going to your primary care doing the best now you still need to go to your primary because if you have a disease you want to know about it i don't want anyone going home and saying i'm not going to go to their primary i'm not going to do this i'm going to web md myself because if you have a problem if you have high cholesterol and you're not making lifestyle changes, we do need to medicate you because you'll have a heart attack or a stroke. If you have diabetes and you're not ready to make those changes, we do need to medicate you. If you, you know, whatever, whatever's going on with you, if you need the medication, or God forbid, if you have a cancer, of course, you're going to want to know that. So don't, don't opt out, but just mm-hmm. know that it's a limited tool. Mm. And how does a practitioner make integrative medicine, you know, sustainable? Is it that model where people have to pay a certain amount per year just to be a patient? Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, integrative medicine just about everywhere is an out-of-pocket conversation. Wow. At different levels of coaching, different levels of access. But yeah, it's an out-of-pocket, it's an out-of-pocket thing. So I recently wrote a book, which should launch on May 18th, and I try to give as much information as possible in this book. And I, what I say in there is you don't need anyone. Try to follow these kind of basic guidelines. And then if you need more, try to find a functional medicine provider. So there are steps that you can do if you are, you know, a motivated patient, you want to do it on your own. There are steps you could do, right? You, you can clean up your diet without coaching. I mean, it's harder. It's harder not to have a guide, but it's not impossible. But yeah, it's the insurance system does not reward time spent with a patient. The insurance system rewards improvement in parameters. I, and I have to submit, like our data gets submitted to the powers that be, and we get report cards to see, did the A1C get better? Did people's blood pressure get better? You know, so it rewards like improvement of diagnosis of like certain measurement because it's very data-driven, but it won't reward, hey, I spent 45 minutes with my patient going through their entire food list, 
and letting them know that what they're eating is like macaroni and cheese is not a food, right? So there's no reward for that. There's no reward for time spent. You know, nutritional counseling, like maybe you get a dollar for it. Like this is not even, it's, imp- it's impossible. The system is set up to fail if you're going to spend time with a patient. Interesting. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with our guest. And we're back. I just want to flag also that, and I know you're a medical doctor, but I think I would be remiss if I did not flag the heavy focus on diet and weight. And I think something like that creates a barrier for patients because certain people don't want to go into the doctor because they don't feel as though, and this maybe ties into the lack of knowledge or or educational or the, the aspect of medical education that does not take into account the, the mental toll or the uh, ability for different people to come into an office, for someone who is judged for coming into the office, for someone who maybe has a disability and is told, you know, there's nothing to do here. And, you know, or someone who comes in and, you know, is told, your symptoms are all in your head because your chronic illness is invisible. You know, I think that there is an oversimplification. And I think like in terms of talking about the time spent with a patient, I think it is worthwhile to also, in a sense, let's say you have a patient and you don't take the time to say, do you have a history of eating disorders? Do you, is this advice, is this medical advice going to cause you mental health trouble? Is it hard that you came in here today with your disability because Previously, doctors have given you seven minutes and then told you there's nothing they can do for you. Or, you know, I think maybe it would it would open doors to have more primary care doctors to in general to have more primary care doctors from different backgrounds and different races and socioeconomic classes. And then to have different primary care doctors who are able to do integrated medicine with an eye to the specifics of that patient's lifestyle and life and history and mental health history and, and, you know, various things that I think you don't get in a seven minutes in and out uh, situation. And, and because they have been treated like that in the past, many people don't even bother to go to the doctor. I think that's a big, a big problem too, is because they see their doctor as someone who will just push them in and out. So they don't even go. So first of all, every single thing you said is correct. But the problem is that the system cannot allow for more than seven minutes. Right. Everything is correct. So you try to be, you know, I try to be, by the way, uh, you guys don't see me, the audience. I'm a thin woman, but I used to be obese. So I know the struggle. So when I, I happen, when I walk in, especially when I talk to women, but in general, I'm extra sensitive to it. I don't walk in because I've had patients come into me like, well, I left my other doctor because he said I was fat. So I'm super sensitive to it. I'm, I'm also gay. So I'm super sensitive to like what that looks like when you come in. Don't assume I have a husband. Don't assume I have kids. Also don't assume because I have short hair that I'm gay. Like don't assume anything. Right. So so I am super sensitive to it. And I could do all a lot of it kind of like organically because of the space that I'm coming from. Right. For a lot of people, they would need time to break that down. Right. Because if you're not from that space, and even if you're well-meaning, you need time to ask the questions. And it's not possible. Right. Because you also want to come and tell me your story about like whatever you're experiencing. And that's going to take time for you to kind of unfold. And then you want. Right. And so for me, and I agree with you. Every patient should take 45 minutes, at least, at least. Right. 
it's not sustainable. Because one of the reasons it's not sustainable is because you have to see how much paperwork is generated for each thing that we have to on our end do. So like, I need a staff of 10 to manage the paperwork that is generated from that seven minutes. <laughs> so, so you now have to see volume in order to pay for everyone's salary, right? So it's, the system is, it is so skewed, but you are 100% right. One of the barriers back to our initial conversation of accessing health is, again, not insurance. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's exactly this. You know, if you're a person of color, you would prefer to be seen with someone who understands some of the stressors that you have. I mean, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Right. But you want to have more options. I know that I'm I'm in Staten Island, which is like a, a bit more rural from it's not Manhattan. So I know that the entire LGBT community comes to me because they can identify and we could talk about certain words like, are you a top or a bottom? No what, no other primary care is going to ask them that in Staten Island, right? Like, we right. need to have this conversation, right? And for those of you listening, if you don't know what that is, Google it real quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't be at work, though. No, don't be at work. Don't be at work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you need to have more people who look like you, who sound like you, so that you could feel comfortable, or people who are willing to do You're, you're 100% right. And the conversation yeah. about weight is huge. When I sit with my integrative patients, this is what I say to them. I said, you and I are going to work together, but this is not a weight loss program Mm -hmm. because weight loss is going to be a side effect. I don't really care. That's you. If you care, that's great. I care about getting your aches and pains gone. When I say diet, I'm not talking about diet to get into bikini. I'm talking about what are the things that are inflaming you that we have to remove. And then I, in fact, I try not to take on integrative patients who are coming to me just for weight loss because that's a whole mindset. That is, there's a lot to unpack there on both sides. And I'm, you know, I want to get you healthier. Yeah, I'm glad to clarify that. Yeah, so I'm glad because, you know, you're right. I'm saying so we're diet, which is triggering because it sounds like, oh, diet, let's get cute in a bikini. Right, right, right. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that. So let me take another moment to say that again in case I triggered anyone in the audience. When I say diet, I'm not talking about the calorie restrictions to look cute in a dress. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what are the things that are inflaming your skin? What in your diet, I should say your nutrition, what in your nutrition is irritating your skin? What in your nutrition is causing, did you know they can cause the ringing in your ears? Certain things that you eat. I have people come in with tinnitus that's ringing in the ears for years. I change what they eat, it goes away. Do I care if you're a size 10 or a 24? No, the ringing in the ears goes away. That's what I mean by diet. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, because I think when it feels like, oh, I'm going to go in and all I'm going to get is a lecture on what I'm eating, it can feel really triggering and it can feel victim blamey. Like, oh, I've brought this upon myself instead of, oh, I live 500 feet from a highway. I have a genetic disposition to this. There's lead paint in my walls. Right. (laughs) Yes. You know, what's interesting is community and environmental factors. There's this one, this is so off topic, but there's this one school that I've seen a lot of articles about where it's like literally a high school. And for some reason, multiple teachers and students at that high school over the last 30 years have had the same rare brain cancer. And they cannot figure out what it is about that high school that this that is causing this. And they're trying to like see, is there a radiation site that used to be there? Is there whatever? And I'm just like, if all these people just independently were like, yeah, I have brain cancer or whatever, like you would never be able to solve what the root cause is or what's going on. But finally, everyone was like, wait, why the fuck is this happening? And <laughs> I think like, you know, that but then it takes someone who's interested to to find out or to not just treat what is going on, but rather be like, 
why is this happening? And and then in terms of like what Allison was saying, victim blaming, it's like they'd be like, well, maybe maybe you smoke cigarettes or something. But there's no like, yeah. there's no time to look into stuff other than if someone's like, OK, this is my pet project now. Yeah, pet project. And then let's talk about how many people are going to stop that pet project. Because if you find the source, someone's going to get sued, right? So there's going to be a whole conversation of like how not to let it be someone's pet project because everyone's scared. Wow. Yes, yes. It's it's so much worse than you than you could imagine. It's (laughs) it's bad and it gets really depressing. Sorry, I didn't mean to. No, no, it's interesting (laughs) because because again, like. Yeah, it's it's you think of insurance as being a business, but, you know, yeah, like medical care or preventing or stopping something is rather than just treating it when it's there is also a business. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all a business, right? So I'm not against business. I am right, for right, sure right. a capitalist, but I think <laughs> you could be an ethical capitalist. And let me tell you what that means. It means that you are like I can, someone can come in and be like, you want to do I'm just using this as an example, so I'm not trying to trigger anyone about Botox. I'm just saying Botox, for example. I don't particularly think it's helpful anyway. It's cosmetic, right? I'm not against it. I'm not for about. Somebody can come and say to me, hey, just start doing Botox. I've chosen not to put that in my practice. It is a moneymaker, but it doesn't align with me ethically, right? Huh. However, I will use it for someone who has hyperhidrosis, which means your armpits are sweating all the time and it's really like you can't go to a job interview. It's like medically necessary. So I'm saying there are a lot of ways to make money in medicine, but can you, does it jive with you ethically, right? So mm-hmm. cosmetics doesn't jive with me ethically. I'm not against it in any way. It's just not how I want to use my platform and my knowledge. So am I making money also on my integrator practice? Sure. But do I feel like I'm impacting people and giving them my time to really make a change in their life and in their children's lives and in their partner's lives? Yeah. And is it all right for me to make money from that? I really do think so. But I've chosen to create an impact that way. And I'm not against those who want to impact how people look. And that's their ethical kind of platform. Then there's also the platform for like ethical um, capitalism, in my opinion, is that what I then do with the money is generated for my team. Right. Because I have a team of women and I purposely hire a very diverse team and I'm a second chance employer, which means I don't care if you went to jail, if you're ready to get back on your feet, I'm your girl. Right. And I don't care if you were in rehab. In fact, if you got over that, there's probably nothing you can do. You can't do. So let's do it. And my best team members are ex-addicts. So now I'm using the money that I'm making to empower other people in my team, right? And to create and to make sure that there's a good work-life balance and make sure that we could take a day off and make sure that if your kid is, school is closed because COVID again, you could bring your kid to the office, right? So there's a way to make money ethically and a way to use it ethically to empower others. So I'm not, I'm not against business. I just think Mm -hmm. we could do it in a way (laughs) that can impact more humans. I'm curious, you mentioned universal health care. And, and is that the way to improve the system? Or what, like, if you could be in charge, what would you do to fix things? Okay, so if I could be in charge, I would have to turn back time. Because the problem right now is so deep rooted, that quite uh, honestly, it can't be undone. Wow, it can't be undone, because you would get so many people unemployed in the process. And the outcry would be intense. Because just think of how many humans are employed by this industry as it is right now. From not just, you know, we think, oh, the big CEOs. It's not just the big CEOs. There's a lot 
of people who's answering the phones like who's typing like you would displace millions of people if you change the system so i'm not even talking about like the greedy fat cats on top who would make it politically impossible but let's just say it was possible what how do you transition so it's it's so far gone it's so far gone mm. but i do want everyone to recognize listening here that we have universal health care in this country when you're over 65 right so when you're over 65 it's american as apple pie to have universal health care mm-hmm. but if you're 64 and under it's communism so, so right that, right but it's like 65 universal health care all the way uh, Medicare is 100% universal health care. So, by the way, guess what we give our veterans, the people who fought for this country, universal health care. Okay, so our soldiers, our veterans, and our and our senior citizens all get universal health care. And it's super American. And it's like red, you know, red, white, and blue all the way. You're right. But if you're under 64 and you talk about it, you're like this bleeding, you know, liberal. So it, it, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. In this country, we actually have every single every single there. So there's universal health care and there's different forms of universal health care. And then there's out of pocket. So every single type of insurance that's in the world actually exists in this country. We have a hodgepodge of everything. Interesting. And so do you think that if we were able to get through the, you know, the political nightmare of, of approving universal health care, that things would potentially get better. And I mean, I understand that so many people who work at healthcare companies would lose their jobs. A lot of hospital administrators would lose their jobs. But is there a way to put them in different roles, like because you're having more family practitioners, because you're having more, maybe more doctors available? I mean, the, the answer is universal health care. Whether it can happen in this country, I don't know, because I want you to, to remember also, like, think about the med school that I just told you about. For it to be successful, you have to decide how many people you're graduating also. So now you're not even just talking about insurance world. You have to talk about every single med school. Like think just in your area, every single med school has to be government regulated. Pharmaceutical companies. This is the, in when Medicare was enacted in 1965, there is a sentence in there that they put in. This is the only way it got passed. That said, because Medicare, remember, is government mm-hmm. paid for insurance, right? There's a sentence embedded in there that the government is not allowed to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies forever. Mm. No other country, a modern country has this. This is why our medication, the same medication here costs more than if you went to England or somewhere else, right? Yeah. So now you have the pharmaceutical company who's not going to, because to make universal healthcare work, we have to manage the doctors, the hospitals, the med schools. The, the pharmaceutical pricing. That's, that's never happening here. It's there's it's mm-hmm. actually a law that says we can't do it. Right. So you have to cap all the lawyers and like the whole me- medical malpractice. You have to cap how much and how often you can sue for. So it's not just a healthcare issue. Right. So it goes into so many other parts of, of the country, of the economy. It's I think it's too far gone. Mm. Wow. Are you heading into the game show, Alice? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know anywhere else to go other than other than silly <laughs> games. Wait, let, me, let, me just, let me say something empowering. Let me say something empowering. Okay, sorry, okay, okay. I don't want to leave it this way. You guys are so lovely. Here's what I want to tell anyone that's struggling. You're not alone. It's not in your head. If you think there is a better way, there is a better way. Um, right now, 
I'm talking globally, obviously, but also in your healthcare journey. If you feel that there's something wrong with you, just find the right person. Don't be dissuaded. Do your primary, do everything they say, do, but keep going. You will find the person that will listen to you. We exist. We're here. <laughs> and we're here to, to, to help you find that way. So don't give up. Is that better? That is nice. Yeah, it's better. Okay, I don't believe the <laughs> word of it, but it's better. No. <laughs> I'm right here, Allison. <laughs> no, I know. But the issue is, you know, the issue is time and money, you know. So for people who already have limited time, limited money, the search for the right, you know, medical practitioner, it might not be manageable. Here's the thing. There's a lot of information on the Internet. You don't necessarily have to go to someone. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about integrative medicine is it's primarily nutrition based so you can make some changes on your own and just try it right like try see what you feel like gluten-free that doesn't cost money see what you feel like dairy-free that doesn't mean you have to now buy the fancy almond milk you could just opt out of dairy right that doesn't cost more to opt out right you could just because you're gluten-free doesn't mean you have to go for the fancy organic you know gluten-free foods you could just opt out of gluten for a while and stay within your means. So there are ways to do it and just see what that feels like for you first. Yeah, I guess I'm just, my pushback is that I think a lot of things probably are nutrition-based, but a lot of things aren't. A hundred percent. You know, a lot of stuff is just really genetic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I have an answer to that, but I know we ran out of time, so. <laughs> <laughs> everything is a full-time job. Every Everything in this country, learning about money, getting care, all of it, full-time job. Yeah. Addressing your mental health, full-time job. All, full-time yeah, job. Everyone's got to have 10 full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and none of them pay. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anyway, should we play a game? <laughs> yeah, let's play a game. <laughs> Woo! Okay. So Hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have um, and then tell me what you would do in that situation. And I just pick a winner. I am so nervous. (laughs) Really don't be. The stakes could not be I was going to say, they're on the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Hmm. You and your partner of four years are going to a Halloween party, but you have to arrive separately due to work obligations. Your partner knows that you're going to be in a full body skeleton outfit that covers your face. When you arrive at the party, you find your partner groping another party goer also dressed as a skeleton. They are shocked to find out they've been fondling the wrong skeleton, even though this other person is significantly taller than you. Would you stay with this cheater? The skeleton's into it? Yeah. The skeleton just thought they were making a real romantic connection at this party. I have no clarifying questions. (laughs) You have no clarifying questions? (laughs) Shit's real easy for me, sis. What is my partner dressed as? I'm gonna give no shit to you out. You don't know that it's me? You don't know that it's me? You, first of all, you fondling people non-verbally, you didn't even check me like, hey, baby, and wait for my response. Right. You just came up to me and started fondling me. And you don't know with your hands? What? No, mm, <laughs> there's no conversation. There's no clarifying questions. Done. Sorry. <laughs> wow. I just want to hear what your, dre- what your partner's dressed as. Yeah, they're dressed as Russell Brand. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, 2008? Get out of here. They only like non-relevant Halloween costumes. That's sort of their thing. No, bye. I mean, it is a little funny, but no, bye. (laughs) All right. So that was a clear cut one for both of you. I'm super black and white on this topic. 
Halloween is says as a, a, a day of revelry and it should not be tainted for me by getting cheated on. So how dare you? Fair enough. Amen. All right. Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 15, says that your laugh is really annoying and that you should change it. So for the next seven years, whenever you are around your kid, you laugh like this. Ha, ha, ha. No. Are you a terrible parent? They find that to be better than my actual laugh? No, but you just say, hey, I changed it. Oh, wait. So you're doing it like purposely to, annoy them. to be annoying? Yeah, you're, you're mm-hmm. messing with them for, for oh. insulting your laugh in the first place. And how many years do I do this for? Seven. God. Why don't I just tell them it's not nice to say that to people? Because you're all about like showing through through actions and you think words aren't enough. And you need to create elaborate situations to prove your lessons. No, I think you're a terrible parent. You <laughs> should tell if you them. Do that, right? Yeah, because now they're going to think that they can just tell people to change things aren't that are inherent about them. And that's rude. I have a different take on that. OK, I have I have three kids and they're all adults and we're very close. And they have told me certain things about me that I would know. They like say you chew with your mouth open. It's really annoying. I'm actually really grateful. <laughs> I'm actually really grateful that they told me these things. They tell me that sometimes I breathe too heavy when I'm watching a movie. And I am really glad to know that. And so we have such a great relationship. I'm I'm like, so I'm like, thanks. Tell me again. Like because it's these are things that you don't know about yourself. Oh I'm my God. so happy to know that. So I would never do the ha 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 thing because I'm like, thanks for telling me. And I changed it. Wow. All right. I think you're both wrong. I think that this approach to parenting is brilliant. And th- that <laughs> level of commitment to a bit for seven years to go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That's love. That's parentship. Fine. <laughs> Fine. God. Wait, you're the moderator. You get to, you get to, you know. I run the whole show. Yeah, I also get to decide. I'm in charge. Yeah, uh, this is this is my one time a week where I really just let <laughs> let loose. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? One of your partner's colleagues invites you over for a home cooked dinner. Their spouse puts out an incredible spread, and when you dive into the dessert, an incredible fruit tart, you proclaim, "Holy moly, I have never made anything this good in my entire life." The spouse blushes and confesses it's actually store-bought. Later, when you go to the bathroom, you see their kitchen, and it is clear that the spouse made the fruit tart. Would you forgive this liar? Hmm. I'm so confused. So it was actually homemade. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but they lied and said it was store-bought. I'm the guest. Mm -hmm. I bit into it. I'm like, this is delicious. And then spouse one says, I worked on it so hard. It's awesome. This past no, two no. says, no, actually, it's store-bought. The colleague isn't a part of the conversation. It's just the spouse. Okay, so I'm just spouse. like, this is amazing. And, and they the go, spouse says, we bought this. Well, okay. Well, the reasoning is, I understand why. I'm going to use some genders, even though I try to avoid that. So let's pretend that the husband is the colleague, the wife is the spouse. You okay. are just hanging out with the spouse. You're just... And the the because the the other two are off, and you say this is the best. I've never made anything this good, and they feel guilty that you feel bad that you've never made anything <laughs> this good. 
So then they lie and say that they oh bought it from a store to protect oh. your feelings. So I'm eating but it then, and I'm going, wow, I never made anything this good. And then they're yes, like, no, yes. no, that's okay. Even though you like are not good in the kitchen. We actually didn't make it. Right. It's a strange lie. And then it's easily disproven when you see all the ingredients in their kitchen. And this is your first time meeting them. Do you forgive them? I, I guess, but I don't want to hang out anymore because I don't trust you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you on this one. Yeah, I don't trust you. Like, I get, like, you know, because you could have been like, oh, I I could teach you. I can give you the recipe. Like, there's other ways. Yeah, it's too self-deprecating. Yeah, there's just, there's a lot here. Yeah. All right. So So you're sort of like, hey, we're never having dinner with them again. Yeah, because what else are you lying about? We can, we can do other stuff. I'll hang out in like a group. Like we can go bowling with like a few other people. But I'm not coming to your house and we're not becoming besties. Wow. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to protect your feelings. Liar. But where They're is, lying. But where's that end, right? Like where does yeah. that end? Lying. Like <laughs> you could also point. just stand silent. You could have just stayed silent. And just be like, hmm, okay. Like, yes. <laughs> if you someone compliments, if you compliment <laughs> someone on their food and they remain silent and go, mm, okay, you would have but if someone says this is so delicious i've never made anything this good you could be like thank you yeah that's a great point that's so kind of you to say without any (laughs) information (laughs) yes exactly all right you both you both played really well this round i'd say you round there's more rounds no we're no 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 this is the only one round game (laughs) just the pure fear that just Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about your practice, your book, and everything that you do? First of all, thank you. This was like the best time I had all day today, probably all week. Uh, so thank you. Uh, uh, so <laughs> we're, the company's called At uh, The New Method. New is spelled with a K because you always knew there was a better way. So The New Method. And we're just about on every platform. So, you know, YouTube, Facebook, whoever's on that. We're really big on TikTok for some reason. And the website is also thenewmethod.com. You can private message us anywhere. My team will answer you. We could do a consult anywhere in the country. My book is coming out on May 18th. So if you follow me, I'll give you a link to it because I'm giving it out for free for the first 24 hours. So there should be no, you know, monetary reason why you can't get access to this information. Amazing. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about villains. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. Baby. So what made you pick villains? Elon Musk. Musk. Why? What's his last name? What's his last name? (laughs) Musk. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because, you know, like John actually posed a question to me where he was like, because I guess in some sense, this guy has done some good for the world in terms of like Tesla and like renewable and, and like, you know, electric vehicles and sort of normalizing them and making them like a desirable thing. Yeah. But then it's like, is that then all tarnished by the other shit that he does? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> I know my version of this is Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. Perfect. Because she went, I think... 
she can she is absolutely able to be held accountable for what she's done in the present day. I get uncomfortable when we completely erase the work that she did for the lesbian community when her show was on the air, the the original, the sitcom. Mm-hmm. When the amount of backlash, I get very upset about people not knowing history. Um, and so if you, you know, are a queer person and you're like, yeah, Ellen sucks. I encourage you to go back and watch uh, her appearances on Oprah after she came out or the anything about the response to what is called the puppy episode. The ways in which Laura Dern, who played her love interest, was blacklisted for a while. Like she went through hell and back being a lesbian at that time. And so, you know, sometimes I put that into context with what is presumed to be her bitterness or her antisocialness or whatever it is that she was criticized for. And obviously she deserves criticism. I think she wasn't paying people enough. Like there are real, real problems there. But I also just feel an empathy because she went through so much. I mean, even a more personal example is my grandmother, May May, who passed away in in, uh, 2018. May May survived the Holocaust and she had one of the worst, like whatever you're thinking is the worst experience of the Holocaust, like she had that. And as a child with her as a grandmother, she was, she could be very cold. She could be very critical. She could be, she could do a lot of stuff that was very um, manipulative or sadistic. And I loved her a lot. And she was super funny and everything like that. But it took my therapist sort of to be like, she, of course, she's a, a sadist. She's protecting herself from what she went through. Like, of course, she she plays mind games and she, you know, talks to you guys this way because not all the time, but like, you know, and I grew to, to appreciate her. But part of appreciating her was being like, yeah, there are things that she did that I think are, I would think of as as horrible, but she's trying to survive in her own way. And she went through all of these things. So it's sometimes it's hard to like, it's like putting things in context, I think. But it's hard because a lot of our media is very much like this person is a villain. Yeah. Another reason that like brought to mind was like these reality show villains, right? Where like mm-hmm. the the narrative is like so clear cut on the show that they're the bad ones. They're causing all the drama. And then suddenly like after the show wraps and you hear like interviews with them or you get some more context or like, you, you know, your your interpretation of everything kind, kind of shifts. Right. And then it's like, you know, and also just like even discussions of people like, Thomas Jefferson, who like did Mm -hmm. some good, but was a slave owner. (laughs) And and I guess mm -hmm. I just like it's like, where does that balance fall? And when does someone tip into being a villain, even if like, let's say they're like a wonderful grandfather? You know what I mean? I know. I know. I think it I think it has to do with the reach that their villainy has. Mm -hmm. Like, does it affect housing policy? Does it affect racism? Does it affect, you know, like I think, I think you take a lot of it into account, but I think sometimes it's putting a a bandaid on a bullet wound in terms of like the ways in which it hurt and affected other, other people. I don't know. I, I'm thinking a little bit of like the ways in which uh, villains in comic books have been given more backstory and how like with Black Panther, right? Killmonger, Everyone, you were meant to be like, Killmonger's bad, Killmonger's the victim, but or Killmonger's the villain. But once you like got the context of why he was doing what he was doing, 
the movie then didn't acknowledge that he was right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I, you left the theater going, I think the villain was right. And I feel similarly sometimes about Magneto from X-Men, where who's also a Holocaust survivor, where I'm like, it, does he have the wrong idea? Which I think makes for a really good villain to be able to have that. But that's in media. That's not in daily life where like your grandpa was so good to you, but was like a diehard Nazi. I don't think interpersonal relationships change the broader global or societal impact that someone has. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we have to paint people as villains to not repeat history, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That like by humanizing them, even if like there are ways to humanize them, it doesn't serve the greater good to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's like being like, well, uh, you know, Hitler loved art. Exactly. And you're like, okay, I said I was high on mushrooms with Mal and Drew one time and we were like so high. And Mal was like, how come whenever you get a group of Jews together, we just somehow end up talking about the Holocaust? And I was like, well, one trauma. And then I was like, I said something like Mal was like, you know, if um, the other powers hadn't like given in to Hitler, maybe we wouldn't have had as big of a World War Two. And I was like, yeah, and if his art had sold, my great-grandparents would be alive, but here we are. (laughs) And, like, keeping in context what the person actually did. Yeah, like, their, you know, their lasting impact. And I also think there's such a difference between, like, you dealing with someone on an individual level and then how society remembers them. A hundred percent, yeah. Or even familially, like, it's so hard. Like, the woman whose father was the BTK, the way that she writes about it, who's the serial killer, the way that she writes about it, you know, she was like, he was my dad. I never really suspected anything. Like, I, you know, he was very strict, but like, he was my dad. We grew up with him, all this stuff. Meanwhile, he was out like raping and killing women. She, but it bled into personally, because I think in her book, she talks about like, he was a little violent with them or he was like kind of scary sometimes. So I think like, it's hard for someone to be, we're talking about if someone is like, completely one way with uh, one group of people and completely another way with another group of people, I think there's always bleed through. Yeah. And like being able to recognize that even if your experience of someone has been positive, that other people's are not lying when theirs is negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think it makes sense like when you break up with someone at to, and you're devastated to like make them the villain or to be like in your mind they're bad so that you don't feel as bad about getting dumped. Hmm. Believe me, I've thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> Something that I have been coming to terms with a lot with my ex-fiance is that I don't think that he was a villain when I was with him. <laughs> but I think that the decision that he made to end the relationship and to treat me so disrespectfully and brutally changed him. Mm. Like the person I know had never done that. Like Mm -hmm. they had never hurt someone the way that he hurt me. But Mm -hmm. I have to imagine and in my brain, like he had to transform to become someone that could Mm -hmm. do that. And now Mm -hmm. he walks around the world as someone who has done that. And that is a fundamentally different person than the person I lived with and was committed to. Right, right. Which is really interesting. 
And so it's really coming from me coming to terms with I wasn't in love with a villain, Mm -hmm. but that person that I loved is now no longer exists. Right. Right. That makes sense. (laughs) It does. It does. But, you know, speaking of bleed through and I won't go into details, but someone in both in both of our lives, I was surprised mentioned not liking him. And I was like, huh. And I had not. Yeah. Like I was just like, oh, that's interesting because they talk about it being so blindsiding. And so like, no, that this is whatever. But then like there was someone who was like, I didn't I didn't like him. And I was like, huh, like there's there's a little tiny crack, you know? Yeah, maybe. But it, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think the thing we don't think about is sometimes these decisions, you know, decisions change people and yeah. people's decisions And then they're doubling down on those decisions. And then the path of the decision leads them on, changes them. So it's not that you were duped. It was that they weren't that person yet. Yeah, that's why you can't kill baby Hitler. I would, though. (laughs) 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 The perfect way to end this episode. What do we rate this episode? I rate it three out of two going to the movies alone. Yes. I will rate it seven out of four. Nobody felt good, but we did it anyway. Woo! (laughs) Thank you to Dr. Afrat Lamandre for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or our channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at She Is Not Melissa, at Allison Raskin, and at Gabby Road on Instagram. Also Emotional Support Lady Substack for Allison and patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn for me. And if you leave us a five-star review, we will be eternally grateful. Bye! Bye! Forever!